Replica Section fans, KLP Worldwide fans, welcome back to another exciting show here. This is Up Late with your host, KLP Kennedy Lucas. Welcome back to our YouTube channel, also our IGT, uh, IGTV channel as well of Swanky Studios. And of course, get this y'all, we are officially back on Daily Motion. So if you guys remember Daily Motion, that was our uh, one of our video uploaders and streamers back in the day, back in, I want to say, the 2015 era. And of course, we are back on our Daily Motion. Uh, let me tell you a little bit about that because, you know, I know we've been, we haven't been on Daily Motion since 2015. So that was about five or six years ago. So you know, it's good to be back. You know, it's good to be back to a streaming platform that we enjoy. And also, we're on every audio platform, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Pandora. And get this, also on Amazon Music. So hopefully, you guys are ready for it because we're coming back strong from KLP Entertainment. Of course, hopefully you guys enjoyed today's announcement. By the time you're saying it, it'll be yesterday, but we did an announcement. Of course, Storm of Okra is finished. So, of course, it's finished. Well, of course, we're taking it to the studio to do some final touches of it to make sure it's perfect, but essentially the film is finished and hopefully you guys are ready for it. It comes out November 6, 2020. So that's about a month and a half away from now. So hopefully you guys are ready for it. This movie, and you'll see it in the behind the scenes video because we will make one, but this movie is so important because learning about this film is important not only for its storytelling that we did in the film, but also our tough year of 2020 has been tough. And of course, I obviously, of course, believe in our black lives and make sure they, that they matter in America. So hashtag black lives will always matter in our hearts here at KLP Entertainment. So ready for that film to come out so you guys can really see it. Um, it's awesome. All I gotta say is awesome. I can't tell you too much about it. Sadly, you have to watch the movie in November to see and experience it yourself. Now, today's topic, hence the sense of the title, and I've read this today. I read this when I got home, um, before coming back to the studio, but I read this when I got home, and Resonance Evil will be getting a series for Netflix in 2021. So, let me tell you why I think... This could be a good series. Now, let me get my handy dandy phone. Uh, I try not to. I try to avoid it so much, but you know, Tyrus, I'm sorry, buddy. I gotta use the phone. So, of course, Resonance Evil Inf uh, Infinite Darkness is a Netflix original anime series coming 2021. Netflix has re uh, has more Resident Evil programming in the works than its live action show. The streaming giant has revealed Resident Evil Infinite Darkness, a CG anime series due to premiere sometime in 2020. Of course, I see on the poster, I see Leon Kennedy, I see Claire. I don't know if we're gonna see Chris or Sherry Birkin or anything like any other people like that on the Resident Evil roster, but on the poster, it just has those two of Leon Kennedy and Claire Redfield. Um, Honestly, I think they're going to add Chris Redfield in the series. Why not? He's kind of the mascot. Well, one of the mascots for Resident Evil. So I do think that he's going to be in this series for sure. I would love to see Sherry Birkin because she's actually one of my favorites. I kind of like the characters that are smart, cute, quirky. I, I like my characters like that. So you have to put Sherry Birkin in there. And she's one of the key leaders of how this whole story unfolds with her dad experimenting and really turning into a monster. So Resonance Evil, uh, and I talked to my friend uh, Maddie about this the other day. 
because um, we were talking about scary movies, um, which stay tuned for the podcast. We're in our blog post. We're, we're writing about the Invisible Man. Good movie, by the way. Um, so Resident Evil is a great series. I have not been so big of a fan of the Resident Evil live action movies. I'm sorry. A lot of people are a big fan of the movies, the live action movies. I'm not. I, I mean, I see the concept. I see what they're trying to do. But I think Resident Evil animated series are the best. And I think this one that comes out in 2021 will be a great series to watch when it comes out. Because it's by the poster, it looks really, really good. It looks like animators are really pulling out all the stops to this series. Netflix is picking it up. So I'm a little bit like, okay, Netflix, don't screw this up now. Netflix has some good originals. But Netflix has been on some hiatus with the other movie that they produced called Cuties, which go listen to the podcast because I went in on that one. But Netflix is picking this up. And again, Netflix makes some really dope stuff. But sometimes when it's a remake of something, and Hulu can contest to this too. Hulu's not guilty or HBO Max, they're not guilty either. But when we're prone to watch something from our childhood that is great, you have these network networks that want to make something, a remix of it. And they end up screwing it up. And to be honest, KOP Entertainment is kind of guilty of this too. We're reproducing three shows of Max Payne, Mass Effect, and Volta. And we get nervous too because we don't want to screw up an original series. Um, so the hints of the purpose is I hope Netflix doesn't mess this up. I don't work for Netflix. I don't know. I haven't seen the footage yet. I would love to uh, early. But, uh, you know, who am I, right? But I really do hope that this is something that they did not mess up. I really do hope Netflix make this a really, really good anime. Netflix's anime department is hasn't been great. I've seen some of the animes that Netflix produced and made. Not a fan. I like the original anime studios that's actually from Japan to make anime. So for Netflix to do something like this, please let this be great. And this is why I think it might be great because of just by the poster, it looks like one of the Resident Evil games. It kind of reminds me of Resident Evil 6. Resident Evil 6 is one of my favorite Resident Evil games of all time. Um, I can name 6 being my number one and then 5 being my second one. I did like the remakes that they did recently. I didn't play Resident Evil 2. I'm a bit of a scary cat when it comes to video games, scary movie, uh, scary video games. I don't really play them as often because I will get freaked out. Um, but I did try Resident Evil 1, the remake, the very first remake they made. I enjoyed it. I didn't finish it, but I enjoyed it. Um, I never really play scary video games. I'm sorry. Um, most fans, most people are a fan of that. I'm not a fan of Friday, uh, Friday Night at Freddy's. I'm not a fan. Um, there's a whole bunch of other scary games that a lot of YouTubers are playing and they're streaming right now. I'm just not a fan of scary movies, uh, scary video games. I like to watch a scary movie, but to play an actual scary video game, I'm not a fan. Sorry. But back to the purpose of Netflix picking up Resident Evil. Um, I really think th that this might be an expansion to the story. I don't think that they're going to remix the story. Um, Resident Evil story has been told many, 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 many times before. So I really do hope that they add some of the elements, like I mentioned earlier in today's show, is they add Chris Redfield. Of course you have to, because the new Resident Evil game, Resident Evil 8 is coming out soon. So you have to have Chris Redfield 
in the series because he is the mascot. If you think about Chris Redfield in other video games, whether it's Marvel vs. Capcom 3 and Marvel vs. Capcom Infinite, or you can think about Project Cross Zone where Chris Redfield and Jill Valentine was indeed, in fact, in both, I want to say both video games, I think. I don't remember. I know, yeah, they might be. I know they were in the second one, but I don't know if they were in the first one. I can't remember. Um, so, Chris Redfield has to be in this show because he is the mascot for Resident Evil. So, I think it would be a huge disappointment if they didn't put it um, put it past them and they just kind of knocked it down. Um, I do want to give Netflix this credit, though, because I want to say that Netflix picked up a Resident Evil movie. It's called Resident Evil Vendetta. I've watched it. This was a couple years back. Uh, I want to say back in my, my dorm days, actually. Um, a very, very great movie. Uh, I enjoyed it. The animation was solid. Um, it was very catchy. It was very um, interesting. Um, it wasn't as gory as I thought it was going to be in Resident Evil Vendetta. So hopefully they pull it up for this Netflix show. For a good Resident Evil uh, series, it has to be gory. The games are gory. Some of the movies are a little bit gory so this series has to be gory that's what we're looking for in a Resident evil game capcom of course is behind this project capcom makes some really dope stuff whether it's their video games their movies their animated series and even their merchandising that they have from every series has been great capcom has made some very very awesome series like the street fighters every movie i've seen every street fighter movie and capcom really do a bang job a bang up very very good job with all the street fighter films and series so hopefully that they're behind the resident evil series infinite darkness will be very very great i really do hope that they add in all the stops i would love to see uh nemesis in this i would like to see um i forgot the other monster's name he's in resident evil 6 i kind of forgot his name um he's big he has a mechanical arm he's huge he was following um, Sherry Birkin and um, I forgot her partner in Resident Evil 6. I'm blanking on the name. But you guys know what I'm talking about. I like to see monsters like that, especially Nemesis. Nemesis is also another mascot because not only he's been in just Resident Evil uh, video games and movies, it's been in other crossovers like Project, Project Cross Zone and Marvel vs. Capcom series. So it would be a no-brainer to put monsters like that into this um, series. Um, I really do hope that they pull out all the stops for this because that's what we're looking for. Um, more characters. Uh, more characters means more voice actors. More voice actors mean you're imploring a little bit more people to come on the show. Um, that's the key things that Netflix and Resident Evil need for the series to be good. And of course, if Netflix, if you're watching this, I will be watching this when it comes out to my Netflix account. I will be doing the judging. I'll be writing and I'll, of course, I'll be doing some podcasting over the show for sure. So hopefully... You guys make it great. And that's all we ask. Us Capcom fans, don't ruin this series for us. It's kind of smart that they're doing this because you got that city uh, series coming out and Resident Evil 8 Village is coming out next year as well. So it's good that they're doing it. It's a great PR move. It's a great marketing move to have a new series come out and a new video game for the PlayStation 4, PlayStation 5, Xbox One, and Xbox uh, Series X series because... It's a PR thing. It's trying to get themselves up. It's trying to get back in there. Capcom is trying to make some more money. Capcom, if you're watching, we would love to see a Street Fighter 6. I would love to see what they're going to do for Street Fighter 6. I know it's coming. I know it's coming. They're 
planning it probably right now as we speak. Who knows? I don't work for Capcom. But I would love to see a Street Fighter 6 as well for Capcom. So comment below. Let me know what you guys think of this new series, Resident Evil Infinite Darkness, coming 2021 for Netflix. Of course, if you have a Netflix account, you'll be able to watch it for sure when it comes out. I get notifications too. Comment below. If you get notifications when a new show is launched, let me know. I want to know if you guys do. I do. Every new show, every new movie that comes on Netflix, I get a Gmail. I get a notification. It's great. I love it. Comment below. Let me know what you guys think about this new series. Will you like it? Will you hate it? Are you going to be blogging about it, writing about it, or even podcasting about it? I want to hear from you guys live from here at KLP Entertainment. Hopefully you guys enjoyed today's show. Please be sure to stay safe. I say drink water every 15 minutes. Wear a mask for God's sakes. Wear a mask, ladies and gentlemen, to keep you safe. And hopefully you guys will see you guys in the next episode of Up Late with KLP Kennedy Lucas. Until then, stay safe. And stay swanky. This message comes from NPR sponsor, T-Mobile for Business. With the T-Mobile Business Advantage, you don't have to compromise on wireless. For a limited time, get up to 90 days of unlimited free on business plans when you switch via bill credits. Stop by a store for details. This is the TED Radio Hour. Each week, groundbreaking TED Talks. Our job now is to dream big. Delivered at TED conferences. To bring about the future we want to see. Around the world. To understand who we are. From those talks, we bring you speakers and ideas that will surprise you. You just don't know what you're going to find. Challenge you. We truly have to ask ourselves, like, why is it noteworthy? And even change you. I literally feel like I'm a different person. Yes. (laughs) Do you feel that way? Ideas worth spreading. From TED and NPR. I'm Manoush Zamarodi, and let's start today's episode with a game. See if you recognize some of these sounds. What do they make you think of? Do you get hungry or thirsty? Welcome to Do they make you feel nostalgic? Horrified. And what about these sounds? What do they make you feel? Black lives matter! Black lives matter! Black lives matter! Jingles, chants, and slogans, they are designed to be packed with meaning. Meaning that makes you buy something, or think about an idea, or maybe even join a movement. The power of brand has the power to influence how we think about the world, how we think about each other, and allow us not only to create soft drinks and salty snacks and over-the-counter pharmaceuticals, but to create a vision for the world and a roadmap for how we want to live every day that we're on this planet. That is our responsibility now. This is Debbie Millman. And I am a designer, and I co-founded and run the 
world's first ever master's in branding program at the School of Visual Arts, and I am host of the podcast Design Matters. Debbie's given two TED Talks, written six books on design, and today on the show, she'll guide us through talks and ideas about why design does matter, how we humans shape ideas into logos and brands, and how those logos and brands shape us. We'll hear about the talks that Debbie uses in her class to help her students design their own lives. But first, let's hear about Debbie's ideas, because for her... Design is everywhere. Everything in our world is designed. Everything that we make as humans is designed. There's intention. There's a deliberation to that. And as a result, we are constructing our reality with visual artifacts, with brands, with communications and messaging, every moment of our lives, we design our lives, whether consciously or unconsciously. And so I believe that the discipline of branding and the discipline of design are, are some of the most important disciplines today that we are all engaged in. Again, whether we know it or not, mm. we are participating in the visual language and the vernacular of our times just by the sheer virtue of being in it. It makes me think that you must see the world or experience the world very differently than many of us. Is going down the toothpaste aisle just like a <laughs> is your brain just on fire? You're like, mm, bad choice of font. Or like, <laughs> what's it like for you? Um, you should ask my wife that question because she <laughs> she witnesses it on a fairly regular basis. Yes, going into a supermarket for me is almost like going into a museum. I can look at everything and see the intention behind it. I mean, branding is manufactured meaning. Brands don't grow on trees. They don't pop up from soil in the earth. We make them, we create them. And as a result, we are constantly differentiating one product versus another through visual language. Mm. And and that's endlessly fascinating to me. Yes. You know, what makes somebody think that one pair of sneakers is different from another pair or one car from another car? All of the decisions in making those things are very deliberate. And how we communicate that difference is very deliberate. And and that is branding. Branding is a combination of of a number of different disciplines. It is a it's a combination of behavior behavioral psychology, cultural anthropology, economics, business strategy, and creativity. Creativity is a huge part mm. of branding because that's how we designate meaning through the visual language of a brand. But all of the other disciplines are what help build brands. Mm. So let's get into the talk that you gave at TED Women uh, in 2019. It's called How Symbols and Brands Shape Our Humanity. 13.8 billion years ago, the universe as we know it began with a big bang and everything that we know and are and are made of was created. 50,000 years ago, there was an explosion of stone tool making, more sophisticated weaponry, and 
32,000 years ago, the creation of our first sophisticated mark-making on the cave walls of Lascaux. It's not a coincidence that we've gone from documenting our reality on the cave walls of Lascaux to the walls of Facebook. And in a very meta experience, you could now book a trip to see the walls of Lascaux on the walls of Facebook. You start with one very well-known example of early human creativity, which is the caves of Lascaux. And these caves, of course, have drawings on their walls from tens of thousands of years ago. But they're not exactly what comes to my mind when I think of branding. So, Debbie, why start there? Yeah, I mean, I believe that those walls show how we were documenting our reality through symbols. I mean, it's just extraordinary that we started to be able to communicate with symbols in this manner. Um, So not only was it a way to communicate at the time, but it was a way of preserving those experiences for us to be able to re-experience. What are some other early examples of how humans communicated through symbols? Yeah, I mean, we started first with... Um, believe it or not, using makeup. We started using makeup approximately 10,000 years ago. Men and women began to self-decorate. And we did this by using makeup. At the time, it wasn't for seductive purposes. This was inspired by, by religious convictions. We wanted to be more beautiful in the eyes of some entity that we believed had more power than us. And the more attractive we looked, the more kindly we'd be looked upon. Hmm. And there really is no culture in recorded history, recorded human history, that we see has not practiced some form of organized worship, which you know we now call religion. And we started to create ways of telegraphically communicating to identify our affiliations. And these symbols help to connect like-minded people and to be able to share an experience without even having to verbally communicate. And these affiliations allowed us to feel safer and more secure in groups. And we do that even today. Mm. This sharing created consensus around what these symbols represented and you knew where you stood just by looking at that symbol. These symbols were created in what I consider to be a very bottom-up manner. They were made by people, for people, and then shared for free among people to honor the higher power that they ascribe to. What's ironic is that the higher power actually had nothing to do with this. These early affiliations they often shared identical characteristics, which is rather baffling, given how scattered we were all over the planet. We constructed similar rituals, practices, and behaviors, no matter where we were anywhere on the globe. We constructed rituals to create symbolic logos, 
We developed strict rules on how to engage with each other, with food, with hair, with birth, with death, with marriage and procreation. Some of the symbols have eerie commonalities. The hand of God shows up over and over and over again. It shows up as the Hamsa hand in Mesopotamia. It shows up as the hand of Fatima in Islam. It shows up as the hand of Miriam in Judaism. You know, Debbie, when you talk about these symbols that show up over and over again in various different cultures, I mean, you'd think that it would bring people together, that we would see what we have in common. And yet it's not enough to keep us from thousands of years of conflict, of religious fighting, is it? Well, you know, what's really interesting about these early affiliations was how how much commonality there was. For example, you talk about the Hamsa hand, and the Hamsa hand shows up over and over and over again, despite how scattered we were all over the planet. And, you know, that's one of the great mysteries. <laughs> um, mm. We constructed similar rituals and practices and behaviors no matter where we were living, what religion we followed, whether it be worship, whether it be how to engage with food or with our hair, with our clothing, with our birth and with our death, with marriage, with procreation. So many of the rules that we've created around these specific behaviors have a lot of commonalities despite how far away we were on the planet and how differently we might have looked. We all behaved so similarly. But what what initially a lot of these symbols were also used for, not only were they used to signal our affiliations, define our beliefs, they also helped to protect us. Hmm. And many of our first wars were religious and and belief-oriented. So we created symbols to designate which side we belonged on because there mm. were no mass-manufactured uniforms. We created symbols, we created flags, we created crests in an effort to understand which side we belonged on because there was no other way to differentiate. More with designer Debbie Millman in just a moment, including the two TED Talks that she uses to help her students think through how they can design their own careers. I teach a class called A Brand Called You. It's really about being able to begin to understand who you are and then begin to understand how you can defend your ideas on the show today, the role of design in our lives. I'm Manoush Zamarodi, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Stay with us. Hey everyone, just a quick thanks to our sponsor 3M, supporting communities in the fight against COVID-19. Since the outbreak, 3M has responded with cash and product donations, including surgical masks, hand sanitizer, and respirators through local and global aid partners. In addition, 3M is on track to produce 2 billion respirators globally by the end of 2020. Learn how 3M is helping the world respond to COVID-19. Go to 3M.com slash COVID. 3M science applied to life. 
Thanks also to Twilio. Right now, businesses are trying to reinvent how they connect with the world. Whether you're delivering packages to customers or treating patients, your users need you to invent new ways to stay connected. Twilio is the platform that millions of developers trust to build seamless communications experiences with phone calls, text messages, video calls, and more. Whatever your use case, Twilio has your back. It's time to build. Visit Twilio.com to learn more. That's T-W-I-L-I-O.com. Activist Aaron Dorr tells his flock of pro-gun followers on Facebook that he's tirelessly fighting for their Second Amendment rights. But if that's true, why do so many pro-gun Republicans hate him so much? Aaron Dorr is a scam artist, a liar, and he is doing Iowans no services and no favors. Find out on the No Compromise podcast from NPR. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Manoush Samarodi. On the show today, the role of design in our lives. And guiding us through this hour is designer Debbie Millman. She has a podcast called Design Matters, and she gave a talk herself about how symbols and brands shape our humanity and our commerce. You share actually a fact in your talk that brands were given legal recognition on January 1st, 1876, and that the first trademarked brand was Bass Ale. What happened there? Well, there was a, from what I understand, not having been there and, and not having too many actual accounts of of what happened, but apparently there was a very long line outside the trademarks registration building. Uh, Bass L folks were the first ones there, hmm. and they got the first trademark for a product. And I often joke about what that says about our humanity, that the first registered brand was an alcoholic beverage. <laughs> Yeah, seriously. But also, what does it say about the longevity of a symbol if it's done well? My sister was doing the crossword the other day, and it was like, what is the brand of a triangle alcoholic drink? Mm. And it it was Bass Ale. That was the answer. And so, Isn't that incredible? It's incredible. It shows how consistency and quality can really help preserve a legacy. Mm. In many ways, the Bass Ale symbol was very much like the Campbell's soup can for Andy Warhol in being able to identify aspects of cultural relevance. Um, Edward Manet included it in his painting in 1882. There's a what I consider to be the first case of branded product placement in his painting. Pablo Picasso also created a cubist painting using Bass Ale. It's quite interesting to see how our patterns signify a certain relationship that we have with products. And you can see the lineage between things like Bass Ale and Campbell's Soup and and the impact that they've had in our culture. Do you feel as though a design has to be good to have longevity and have power. Have you ever seen poorly designed things actually be successful as well? Well, this is where I think that assimilation and taste is very much intertwined. Hmm. Design is a very subjective discipline, as is art. The very 
same painting done by Jackson Pollock might have very polarized responses. Some people might understand what he was doing intellectually and conceptually. Other people might look at it and say, my kid could do that. It's on my refrigerator. It's very hard to prove that something is good unless you use the financial result as evidence. And we know that that isn't always the case. You know, the number one best-selling book in the world might not also be the best written. This next logo is a logo that has a shared identity with wholly different meanings. As a Jewish person, I believe that this logo, this swastika, is the most heinous logo of all time. But it actually has a rather surprising trajectory. The word swastika originally comes from the ancient Sanskrit word Svastika, which actually means good fortune, luck, and well-being. In the early 1900s, before it was appropriated by Hitler, it was used by Coca-Cola on a good luck bottle opener. The American Biscuit Company prominently registered the mark and put it on boxes of cookies. The U.S. Playing Card Company registered the mark in 1921 for fortune playing cards. The Boy Scouts used the mark on shoes in 1910. And the symbol was also featured on cigar labels, box tops, road signs, and even poker chips. Even the Jane made use of the logo along with a hand of God many millennia ago. These marks were identical, but with use as a Nazi symbol, the impact became very, very different. The hand of God and the swastika, they all demonstrate how we've been manufacturing meaning with visual language over millennia. The swastika symbolized German dominance. It was also the Nazi party's brand. But what is the difference? Like, are symbols and brands the same thing, essentially? They've, they've become more similar over the years. So mm. you could have a stop sign, and that shape and color gives you a sense that it is a stop sign, even if you don't necessarily know what the word stop means in a different language. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that's a symbol of stopping. If this symbol becomes something that helps to sell an idea, mm-hmm. it can become a brand. What's happening now, and, and what I'm so hopeful about, is that the tenets of branding that, for the most part, were really relegated and leveraged by corporations because of the democratization that technology has given us in our ability to communicate, people, citizens, <laughs> are using the tenets of branding to create their own symbols that help to articulate, verbalize their own beliefs about what the future can be or what change they're demanding. So we see that with Black Lives Matter. We see that with Me Too. And so Citizens are using that consistency, the use of color, the use of shape, the use of hashtags now to be able to communicate ideas that become movements that people can literally buy into. 
And so it's not just about financial reward anymore. It's also very much about creating the kind of world we want to live in through those symbols and beliefs and behaviors. You're leading me to ask, I think, a sad question a little bit, which is this idea about a decade ago that came up, which, you know, seems completely normal now. But at the time, was a little radical, this idea of personal branding Mm. with the advent of Facebook and social media and this idea, you know, people were no longer necessarily having stable jobs for corporations. They were having to be freelancers or gig economy or temporary part-time workers. And and you needed to be on LinkedIn and you needed to sell yourself. And I wonder, is that good or bad? I don't know. I have very mixed feelings about it. I don't. I actually have very strong feelings about it, and I don't believe a person should aspire to be a brand. You can have products that you create that are branded, but brands are manufactured. They don't have a soul or a consciousness. Humans do. Hmm. Humans are alive, and we're messy, and we're inconsistent, and we have a sense of right and wrong and good and bad, and we're constantly faced with making decisions about being right or wrong or good or bad. What I believe that humans should maintain and grow and evolve is their character and their reputation. Mm. And so I feel very, very strongly that people should aspire to be better people and people can work on developing brands and making brands, but they're very, very different things. At this point, I want to turn to some of the talks that you wanted to share with us. These these are talks that you usually show in your own design class. They're on your syllabus. Yeah, I teach an undergraduate class at the School of Visual Arts in the Design and Advertising Department. And then I run my graduate program in branding at the School of Visual Arts. And I teach a class called A Brand Called You. And, and it's tongue-in-cheek because of, again, my point of view about personal branding. (laughs) But it's really about being able to begin to understand who you are, your belief system, ideas about who you can be out in the world, out of the classroom, and then begin to understand how you can defend your ideas, Mm -hmm. to create a philosophy and defend your ideas. Which is why you actually chose some really surprising talks, like one from psychologist Dan Gilbert. He's at Harvard and and best known for his studies on happiness. Why do you why do you start there? The reason that I start with happiness and really understanding the motivation for happiness is that we're living in a time where happiness is very much associated with becoming wealthy. Yes. As if wealth is the primary gateway to happiness and pursuing wealth so early in a career really removes any ability to take risks or to experiment, which I believe are really critical for any career requiring creativity and imagination. And Dan's talk allows us to begin to understand that using wealth as a carrot, it's really a replacement strategy for a strong sense of self-worth and can result in making bad decisions about what to do with your freedom. And so much of the time, we're self-editing, deciding what's impossible before it's even possible. And, and so the talk is a talk that I play really right at the very beginning of both the undergrad and the graduate semester. 
as a way to really understand what our motivations are so that we can try to make better decisions about who we want to be when we graduate. From field studies to laboratory studies, we see that winning or losing an election, gaining or losing a romantic partner, getting or not getting a promotion, passing or not passing a college test, on and on, have far less impact, less intensity, and much less duration than people expect them to have. In fact, a recent study, this almost floors me, a recent study showing how uh, major life traumas affect people suggests that if it happened over three months ago, with only a few exceptions, it has no impact whatsoever on your happiness. Why? Because happiness can be synthesized. Sir Thomas Brown wrote in 1642, I am the happiest man alive. I have that in me that can convert poverty to riches, adversity to prosperity. I am more invulnerable than Achilles, fortune hath not one place to hit me. What kind of remarkable machinery does this guy have in his head? Well, it turns out it's precisely the same remarkable machinery that all of us have. Human beings have something that we might think of as a psychological immune system, a system of cognitive processes, largely non-conscious cognitive processes, that help them change their views of the world so that they can feel better about the worlds in which they find themselves. Like Sir Thomas, you have this machine. Unlike Sir Thomas, you seem not to know it. Okay, so we can synthesize, we can manufacture our own happiness. Hearing that makes me relieved, actually, considering the year we've had so far, 2020. <laughs> I know. When you play that to your students, do, do you, what goes through your mind? Manoush, when I talk to my students, I ask them the following question. What are you most afraid of if you don't achieve your dreams? And one of the most honest and heartbreaking responses I've heard was from one young man, one of my students, who declared that if he went after what he wanted and he didn't achieve it, he would die of heartbreak. Goodness. So many students that I teach, that I meet and I teach, would rather not pursue their dreams at all in an effort to avoid the debilitating, life-threatening heartbreak that might occur if they try something and fail. And you know what, Manoush, I felt the same way. I felt the same exact way. And part of what I learned from Dan and his talk and then my subsequent research into his work is our human brain is also a regulation machine. When we're cold, we seek warmth. When we're hot, we seek to be cold. Mm -hmm. Or we fall madly in love and we feel like we're never going to get enough of our beloved. How wondrous, you know? And then fast forward 18 months later and we find that we're shouting at them to stop chewing ice. So, you know, <laughs> not that that's an example I would use in not my own yet, life. Not ha -ha. personal issue, You know, we, yeah. uh -huh. <laughs> we metabolize everything, love, hunger, body temperature, and even heartbreak. We metabolize our heartbreak. So what seems unbearable at first might prove to be the best thing that have ever happened to us, or so our brains will convince us. And that's the whole notion of the synthesized happiness. Natural happiness is what we get when we get what we wanted. And synthetic happiness is what we make when we don't get what we wanted. And in our society, we have a strong belief that synthetic happiness is of an inferior kind. I wanna to suggest to you that synthetic happiness is every bit as real and enduring as the kind of happiness you stumble upon when you get exactly what you were aiming for. 
the lesson I want to leave you with from these data is that our longings and our worries are both to some degree overblown because we have within us the capacity to manufacture the very commodity we are constantly chasing when we choose experience. So many things go through my mind when I hear that. Part of me is thinking like, yeah, everybody wants to be like Steve Jobs, a genius. But the reality is that most of us fail and then we try a different job and maybe that goes pretty well or maybe part of it doesn't. It is constant micro steps, iterations. And so I feel like as much as I do want natural happiness, I'm I'm old enough to know that synthetic happiness is for for us mere mortals. (laughs) Well... Most of the time when we synthesize happiness, we don't know the difference and we don't even know necessarily that we're doing it. How Mm. many times have we looked at our past and said, oh my God, if that terrible thing hadn't happened, then I wouldn't be here where I am today. Mm -hmm. We're pattern seekers. And so we'll often look at some failure or rejection as the reason for our current state of happiness. If that relationship hadn't, you know, broken up, then I wouldn't have met this love of my life. And so (laughs) We we are constantly trying to make sense of our past by synthesizing our current happiness. So in terms of how Dan's ideas relate to teaching, branding, and design, are you coaching your students to think about designing a life and rethink their goals and why they're there in the first place? Yes and no. I mean, the notion of a vocation has really changed Mm. over the last two centuries. You know, as as recently as 150 years ago, most people didn't consider happiness or fulfilling their purpose when they were thinking about their work. Most people were just happy to have paid work in the first place, and they were grateful that they could provide for their families. Now we're living in a day and age where people are hiring other people and paying them in order to sell more products communicate ideas better, move things off the shelves, write code, invent, innovate. But when you work for someone, and this is really one of the things that I try to communicate really strongly to my students, when you're working for anyone, you're essentially asking him or her to give you money to do that thing. That thing might be something that you love or you went to school for or have a deep interest in. But the people that hire you, for the most part, are not interested in what you love or Mm. what your dreams are. (laughs) So it's up to every individual to find that for themselves and not expect any person or product or opportunity to fill the sort of deep well of meaning making inside each of us. (laughs) We can't give our effort to discover our own purpose over to anyone or project it into any accomplishment. And, And Dan's talk, I do believe, really helps articulate that. When we come back, the graphic designer who Debbie Millman most admires and the risks she took to build her career. On the show today, the role of design in our lives. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Manoush Zamarodi. Stay with us. Hey everyone, just a quick thanks to our sponsor, First Republic Bank. 
Safeguard your spending with the redesigned First Republic mobile app, with features like personalized alerts for unusual activity and customizable settings that prohibit unauthorized purchases. You can even turn your debit card on or off if it's ever lost or stolen right through the app. Visit firstrepublic.com digital to learn more. Member FDIC Equal Housing Lender. This message comes from NPR sponsor Monday.com. Technology certainly yields a lot of power, and with Monday.com, your business can use it to bring teams and departments together. No more lost emails, countless video calls, vague action items, and endless back and forth for simple projects. Monday.com is a flexible platform that finally allows you to manage your people, projects, and external tools all in one place. Try it out for yourself. For a free two-week trial, head to monday.com and take it for a spin. With the passing of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the president is hoping to fill the seat with a conservative judge. And evangelicals who play an important part in American politics have been waiting for this moment. But how did evangelicals become such a powerful force? Listen now to the history of evangelicals on the Throughline podcast, from NPR. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Manoush Zamarodi. On the show today, the role of design in our lives with designer Debbie Millman. And so far, we've heard from Debbie about the history of symbols and brands and why she wants all her students to hear Harvard psychologist Dan Gilbert's talk on the surprising science of happiness. Now, the other talk that Debbie always shares with her students. It's about making beautiful things and making a living. The talk is by Marion Banshees. Marion Banshees is a graphic artist. She started her career as a book typographer and then ran a design firm and then essentially gave it all up. (laughs) She gave it all up to take a risk and start over as a graphic artist where she was making things that she felt mattered more. Mm. And she gave herself, I believe she gave herself a year and then hit the big time and became more popular than I think she ever could have or would have imagined. And she did that really flying in the face of a lot of the criteria for being a successful designer. Her work, I believe, resonates with people because it gives them a sense of hope. It gives them a sense of being able to create who we want to be on our best day. I know that sounds a little woo-woo, but if there's anybody that has inspired people to do that through design, it's Marion. These days I call myself a graphic artist. Uh, So where my work as a graphic designer was to follow strategy, my work now follows my heart and my interests with the guidance of my ego to create work that is mutually beneficial to myself and a client. Now this is heresy in the design world. The ego is not supposed to be involved in graphic design. But I find that for myself, 
Without exception, the more I deal with the work as something of my own, as something that is personal, the more successful it is as something that's compelling, interesting, and sustaining. So I exist somewhat outside of the mainstream of design thinking, where others might look at measurable results. I tend to be interested in more ethereal qualities, like does it bring joy, is there a sense of wonder, and does it invoke curiosity? And I'm slowly coming to understand that the appeal of what I do may be connected to why I do it. Oh, I love that last sentence so much that the appeal of what I do may be connected to why I do it. And then Marion goes on to show a few of her illustrations, including one that is just so beautiful, ones that are made with sugar. And she tells this kind of funny story about how it started on her kitchen table. I've been eating cereal for breakfast all of my life. And for that same amount of time, I've been spilling sugar on the table and just kind of playing with it with my fingers. And eventually, I used this technique to create a piece of artwork. And then I used it And again she describes tracing words and phrases in sugar, kind of like being on like a sand table. And they ended up being photographed for a book. Can you tell us about that project, Debbie? Yeah, she, she had an opportunity uh, to partner with Stefan Sagmeister. Um, and Stefan Sagmeister is one of the most remarkable designers working today, who also infuses a lot of his work with a point of view. And in the case of the collaboration between Stefan and Marion, Stefan was working on a series of pieces called Things I've Learned in My Life So Far. And so he was using statements to articulate those things. And so he partnered with Marion to have her visualize some of the statements. And she created several using sugar in very swirly decorative type. So mm-hmm. the combination of the sugar with this highly decorative calligraphic script add to that Stefan's really imaginative statements and you are confronted with a remarkable piece of art. What Marion did after that though was really, really meaningful to me. After spending all of that time, which must have been, I think, days to construct this highly intricate decorative typography. She then jostled the table (laughs) so that all of the sugar spilled all over each other. And you could still see some of the outlines of the type. And so the combination of both the beautifully photographed typographic sugar and then the aftermath of the jostling, I think, leaves you with this sense of the power of time and change. Like a wave washing over a sandcastle that you worked on all day. Exactly. So can we go back to that line that I just keep thinking about, and I don't think I've cracked it, so maybe you can help me. She said she was slowly coming to understand that the appeal of what she does is connected to why she does it. This is one of the underlying themes of the reason I even show this talk to my students. What I try to convey to them is that they must be able to communicate what is unique about what they do and Mm. why. And they have to do this in a really 
easy to understand way. And ultimately, what Marion articulates there is her Hmm. mission. You know, it's her mission statement. And so every student that is in my classroom comes out of the classroom with a mission statement, one sentence, so that when somebody asks, why do you do what you do? Or what do you want to do next? Or what do you want to do when you graduate? They are able to instantly answer with clarity, not only for the purposes of continuing a conversation with with whoever is asking, but so they fundamentally understand their intention. What do they believe in? And they need to know what they believe in, whether or not it's popular. Martin Luther King didn't go around asking if the I have a dream speech would do well in market research. (laughs) You know, he believed it sincerely and passionately. And so ultimately, I want my students to be able to understand their motivations and their intentions so thoroughly that it becomes part of their DNA. It's not something false. It's not something phony. It's not something that they're hoping will impress people. It's just an honest and authentic part of who they are and how they want to express what it is they do. So it's not so much the way that Marion is doing it that I want them to be able to emulate. It's the why that Marion is doing it that I want them to see as an example so they can craft their own philosophy and their own beliefs and ultimately their own mission. To say I wonder is to say I question, I ask. And to experience wonder is to experience awe. The world is full of wonder. But the world of graphic design, for the most part, is not. I think that one of the things that religions got right was the use of visual wonder to deliver a message. I think this true marriage of art and information is woefully underused in adult literature. And I'm mystified as to why visual wealth is not more commonly used to enhance intellectual wealth. When we look at works like this, we tend to associate them with children's literature. There's an implication that ornamental graphics detract from the seriousness of the content. But I really hope to have the opportunity to change that perception. So when she was saying that she was showing a slide of an illustration or or graphic art that she was doing as part of an, an adult book, and I mean, I feel like that is such a good question. Why don't books for adults have more illustrations? But then it made me think, well, maybe that's... Like, why we're all on Instagram so much, that that they're finally the world's need to communicate visually has been granted in some ways by the Internet. It it transcends all language. It, it, is that is that where you feel like maybe we are right now in terms of visual content? Yeah, I think that this is sort of a wonderful, symmetrical return to some of the earlier concepts that we were talking about in the show today with the notion of religious symbols or even logos being able to telegraph affiliations and signify beliefs. And I think that Instagram, for in both good and bad ways, allows us to telegraph our experiences without having to work so hard at understanding what's happening. And in the same way that logos or religious symbols are able to telegraph volumes without any actual language associated with it, photographs 
have been able to start doing that as well in the last century. And Instagram allows us to project a world that we'd like to communicate that we're living in to others. <laughs> right. And the notion of being able to curate our experiences is really no different <laughs> than what we were trying to do on the walls of Lascaux. But I think with Instagram, we're trying to impress people more than we were maybe doing back in the days of Lascaux. I do spend a lot of time on my work. And one of the things that I've been thinking about recently is what is worthwhile? What is it that's worth spending my time on and my life on in this way? Working in the commercial world, this is something that I do have to struggle with at times. And yes, sometimes I'm swayed by money. But ultimately, I don't consider that a worthy goal. What makes something worthwhile for me is the people I work for or with, the conditions I work under, and the audience that I'm able to reach. So I might ask, who is it for, what does it say, and what does it do? It's very, very common for designers and people in the visual arts to feel that we're not contributing enough. Or worse, that all we're doing is contributing to landfill. Here I am, I'm showing you some pretty visuals and talking about aesthetics. But I've come to believe that truly imaginative visual work is extremely important in society. And I actually really feel that it's worthwhile to spend my valuable and limited time on this earth in this way. I mean, it is a really privileged place to be in to be able to decide what projects you want to take. And so I guess, you know, like, what do you recommend, Debbie, to people who are trying to do work that creatively fulfills them and make a living? Well, you have to master your craft. And mastering craft takes a long time. There's this notion of being able to do something just because you think you can do something. I think that anything worthwhile takes a long time to master. Um, it takes training to get good at anything. And you need to spend enough time learning the craft before you master the craft. Marion spent 20 years doing that before she was able to get to a position where she had more choice in determining what she did and what she didn't do. That's why I think that when you're first starting out, you do want to make the decisions that set you up to be able to be 10 or 20 years down the road in a position where you do have more say about what you do and don't do. And there are always people that are going to make it big time in their 20s. I have a suspicion that comes from talent and good parenting. Not everybody has mm, that. Mm. Uh, so for those of us that takes a little bit longer, um, you want to try to set a path for yourself where you're able to ask yourself about what it is you want to do and make decisions based on what you think is possible as opposed to editing yourself early on because you think it's impossible to get what you want. You know, everything that you do contributes to your success at getting what you want. 
And you have to take your training very, very seriously. Mm. Only the best athletes in the world make it to the Olympics. Only candidates who work the hardest at finding and winning a great job are successful. There's very little luck involved. Winning a great job is about hard work, stamina, grit, ingenuity, timing. And what might look like luck is simply hard work paying off. So I do think that the constant mastery of your craft and the crafting of a philosophy is key at being able to fulfill your your goals and your meaning and your purpose. Mm. I have loved listening to you coach your students in terms of how they should essentially design their life in design, in the world of design. Where are you in the process? Oh, I have spent pretty much my whole life trying to design a life that has meaning and purpose. And I'm still trying to figure all of that out. And at this point, I've become more patient with that process. Mm. So as I design this life, I've become increasingly more comfortable with the notion that it's taken me a long time. I am not in my 20s. I'm not in my 30s. I'm not in my 40s. I'm nearly 60. And I'm still working at finding my purpose and meaning. And probably for the very first time, I'm a little bit more comfortable with the pace that it's taken for me to get here. Mm in that now I want to savor it and I don't want to peak until I'm close to the end. That is very powerful for me. I've been, my motto for the last year has been slow your roll. Um, Yeah. And that is very helpful. And you know what, Manoush, I might be synthesizing my own happiness here (laughs) (laughs) by trying to make sense of the fact that it's taken me a long time. And now that it's taken me a long time, I'm like, you know, I'm cool with that. Forget the struggles that I had in my 20s. Just as valid. Yeah, exactly. And I can tell you, it's it's just as satisfying. (laughs) And yeah, I can look back at that decade of rejection and failure. But hey, you know what? It got me here. I'm cool with it. That's Debbie Millman. She's the host of the podcast Design Matters and the chair of the Masters in Branding program at the School of Visual Arts in New York. Thanks so much to Debbie for sharing her favorite talks and teaching us about design. You can see the talks that she mentioned at ted.npr.org and hundreds more TED Talks at ted.com or in the TED app. Our production staff at NPR includes Jeff Rogers, Sanaz Meshkinpour, Rachel Faulkner, Deba Motasham, James Delahousi, J.C. Howard, Katie Monteleone, Maria Paz Gutierrez, Christina Kala, and Matthew Cloutier. Our intern is Farah Safari, and our theme music was written by Ramteen Arablui. Our partners at TED are Chris Anderson, Colin Helms, Anna Phelan, and Michelle Quint. I'm Manoush Zamarodi, and you've been listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. You know, as a Yemeni and a human being, I I really feel my people suffering. So I need to send it to the world. And it really, you know, it makes me very happy and satisfied 
when I can raise innocent people's voice through the world. Sometimes there are people, if we are in a, in a country that no one will hear about us, no one will help us. It's very important to tell decision makers from around the world, to inform UN, to inform uh, donors, to inform all of the nations, to inform our politicians, to inform everyone what's going on in the country so they can make decisions and to do, to do a change in this world. Me, as a producer, I think my vital role is to help people say what they suffer from and to inform decision makers what's going on in the ground and to do solutions to this war. The world's worst humanitarian crisis. We hear the story from inside Yemen. How has coronavirus made the situation even more dire? And if potential war crimes are being committed, what can be done about it? Welcome to the Sky News Daily Podcast with me, Dermot Murnahan. Thanks for joining us as we examine the story beyond the headline. On today's episode... Hunger is ravaging the young of Yemen. Only the most critical are taken in here. There are just far too many children to care for. The human suffering, loss and devastation. We look at what's really going on in Yemen. People should try to help and save human lives from this disaster. From those living in the country, as well as our team who travelled to report from within. One of the human rights investigators, she said, in Yemen, there are no heroes. There are just victims and criminals. But is the world doing enough to bring peace and stability for the people of Yemen? They've stopped counting the COVID dead in North Yemen, in a country battered by six years of civil war. Coronavirus is just another killer. The world's worst humanitarian crisis is deepening in Yemen. Millions of Yemenis face ongoing hunger and malnutrition. We drove hundreds of kilometers through dry riverbeds, eventually climbing up the last few hundred meters to reach the isolated hillside village community of Washa. Sky's Alex Crawford travelled to Yemen to investigate what's going on inside the country. We are the first foreigners to reach here, the first outsiders to investigate an attack here and see what happened on the ground. Here, an airstrike wrought terrible damage, reducing one home to rubble within seconds. Inside, it was packed with women and children from the Majali family who were gathering for lunch. Nine people were killed instantly six of them children. And to look at how coronavirus has compounded the challenges faced by those trying to save lives. Before we speak to Alex, the team's producer in Yemen was Ahmed Beda. So my role as an, a news producer, I am the one who create, I mean, to help to create the story, to coordinate, to get the visas and all of the logistics for the team to enter the country. As we know, Yemen now is the worst humanitarian crisis in the world. So most of our focus nowadays is about the humanitarian stories and also to talk more about the war and about how we can create peace in, in the early future for Yemenis. We try to explain to the people all around the world what is the situation in Yemen and how, how Yemeni people are really suffering from this unmerciful, un, unmerciful war. 
Yemen, we always call it in news, it's the forgotten war. It's not forgotten because news, uh, news agencies or news outlets, they don't want to go. It's forgotten because it's very difficult to go to. There are a lot of barriers that we face. The logistics are very difficult and it takes ages to get visas, to press visas to enter the country. Unfortunately, all of the parties fighting in Yemen, they're not happy with media to be inside the country because I think media is the eyewitness. The media, the real media is the one that will will tell the world what's going on in the ground. So it's all it has been very difficult to, to bring you know journalists since 2018 until today. I mean I can count you the crews that we worked with in Yemen from 2018 until today like you can count them with your fingers this is not journalism it's it has been difficult for journalists to enter the country it has been difficult to arrange you know the logistics to enter the country ahmed has lived through the continuing conflict every time i cover stories with journalists with tv crews or whatever every time i go to a place it's getting worse and worse it's because in yemen there are authorities, I mean, governmental authorities like teachers, doctors or whatever. They don't, get, they don't have salaries since two years now. There are, we don't have electricity for five years in northern Yemen. We don't have water. We don't have any basic needs. It's getting worse and worse. And when we say famine in Yemen, it's not because of we don't have food. I always say this to, to journalists. It's because people can't afford food. People can't afford transportation. You know, doctors can't go to work. They don't have salaries. Although they don't, even though they don't have salaries, they still go to work and treat people. And imagine now we are in the middle of the, the new invisible enemy, as we said, COVID-19. It's like how this people, how how we will survive. I mean, if COVID-19 destroyed the best health infrastructures from all around the world, how would it be? to you know to a country that is its health infrastructure is already destroyed when i went with alex crawford and her team to the hospital where we supposed i mean to the clinic in northern yemen in Hajar to see the malnutrition kits usually when we arrive to these kind of clinics we usually we find you know 10 20 30 or let's say maximum 40 but that time when we arrived with alex crawford it was the worst time i saw with my eyes they had more than 90 malnourished kids inside that clinic so it was horrible it was catastrophic you can tell that the kids were very skinny people are uh, you know screaming and crying and suddenly when we, we were in middle of our work when we were reporting one of the children died I mean, just in front of our eyes. It was horrible. It, it was a bad moment to hear a mother crying when she lost her young son. You know, it, why, why all of this? People should know this. People not, should stop this chaos. We should do something to help Yemeni people. I mean, Yemeni people are very kind. They are very hospitable. We have a rich country. It's a very beautiful country. Everyone uh, gets surprised when they arrive to Yemen. They they see a, a country with uh, with beautiful mountains and nice beaches, but and nice people. They are always smiling, even though they are really suffering and injured from their inside. So we have to do something. 
to stop this and to help these innocent babies who dies every day. He witnesses the devastation caused and feels the pain endured by so many. I mean, you still see people living a normal life. You still see, you know, people, you know, trying to go, you know, to, to cope with, with the situation. But to be honest, I think every, every person in Yemen is suffering. It's not just a direct suffering. I mean, either from the blockade or from many reasons, but everyone is suffering in this country. You know that I live in Sana'a, the capital city of Sana'a in Yemen, and they closed our airport since four years now. I mean, we don't have airports. If I want to travel outside of Yemen, I need to drive 12 hours to go to, to Aden, to the southern uh, city of Aden, and then take a flight international flight to, to Cairo or whatever. So, I mean, imagine there are people who are suffering from chronic diseases as well. It's not just only malnutrition. It's, there are people who, who are diabetics, who have a blood pressure, and they don't have medicine. They don't have, uh, you know, it's, it's a lack of medicine, lack of so many, uh, you know, things. I have a beautiful family. I have my own wife. But we, I, I'm really scared for their future, of course. I mean, I have my siblings, they go to school, but still, it's, 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 it's not a normal country, it's not a, a normal situation. Ahmed has urged the world not to turn its back on Yemen and wants solutions. My message to the British free people, uh, free men and women from Britain and from the Western countries, you have to stand and help Yemenis to stop this war. Yemenis, they don't have the decision with their hands because it's not, it's not a fight, it's not fighting inside the country. It's, it's, it's something, oh, international powers are playing in, in the war in Yemen. So please stand with us, all of the politicians around the world, and we say enough, that's enough. It's a, the worst humanitarian crisis in the world, and this is the time to stop it. It's not humanitarian crisis because of it, it, it was made by God. It's because of it, it, it's, it's a humanitarian crisis, and it's made by humans. So if we made this humanitarian crisis, we have to stop it, and we stop this war, and we raise the voice of peace again in, inside Yemen. And I don't think my people, Yemeni people, deserve what they faced, I think. Now it's five years of the war. This is the right time to say that we humans have the same decision as we are against war, we, get, we are against crimes, we are against blood. We have to live in a peaceful world. Stop and enough for what happened in Yemen and please, please, please help us to do this. It's like we are all humans, people in all around the world, they should know what is the Yemeni suffering and the people, and people in Yemen, they need to share, to tell the world to help them to stop this war. Every nation from around the world, if they face a war, they always have, you know, they always suffer and they have problems. So we need to send their voice. So I believe me, as a news producer working in Yemen, my responsibility is to share my people's voice to the world. People should hear what's going on in the country. People should try to help and save human lives, human lives from this disaster. So it's very important that people should know what's going on. And it's very important that we should do something to stop this war against my people.
coming up, I speak to Sky's special correspondent, Alex Crawford, and our foreign news editor, Zain Jafar, about reporting from inside Yemen. Well, Alex, Zain, very good to speak to you both. And Alex, first of all, uh, give us the background to your reporting. I know it's not the first time you've been in Yemen, but why did you go there this time? Why now? Well, to be completely frank, Dermot, is because we finally got visas. We had been really struggling to get any access to the country for at least two years, wasn't it, Zane? We were battling to get um, to get visas, and finally they came through. There was a lot of work behind the scenes in different corridors and different rooms and different embassies badgering them and cajoling them and persuading them and it came at a crucial point I think in Yemen's very tortured recent history because it's been hit with basically a sort of triple whammy. Um, It's had a a long-running war, it's got severe and tragic malnutrition and now it's also coping with coronavirus and you know, this is all three have combined. It was already the world's biggest humanitarian crisis on top of coronavirus as well. It just seemed like far too good an opportunity not to take up and not to get right in there. We spent a considerable amount of time investigating. And I think to take the words of one of the bravest people that we met there, one of the human rights investigators, she said in Yemen, There are no heroes, there are just victims and criminals. And we certainly found a huge number of both of those. Based on our investigations, and we travelled, I would say, hundreds, thousands of kilometres, crisscrossed the country, across the different lines of territory held by the different sides, because the country is mired in a, a really devastating civil war which has basically cut the country in half. You've got the pro-government forces supporting the recognised government of uh, President Hadi which is supported by a coalition and that coalition of nations is led by Saudi Arabia and backed by America and Britain amongst others against Houthi rebels who are backed by Iran. So what makes this whole thing so much more tragic is that this is basically a proxy war and wouldn't be going on if it wasn't for the involvement of these foreign countries perpetuating, fueling and funding the war. What specifically have you been witnessing, Alex, that's led to these allegations of war crimes on both sides? There is an imbalance here because... One side, which is backed by some of the richest, most powerful countries in the world, Saudi Arabia, Britain and America, and which has air dominant over the country, is already linked to thousands of civilian deaths. Human rights investigators from a range of different outfits have collated at least 500 different specific attacks against civilians. But we felt this wasn't good enough for us. We wanted to investigate our own potential example. So we decided to um, travel up to the Houthi control area of Washa, right up in the northwest of Yemen, near the the Saudi border, to investigate the latest attack. Uh, We had to travel 
hundreds and hundreds of kilometres, not an ordinary journey because it involved crossing uh, dry riverbeds, it involved driving up really inhospitable, rocky mountain terrain. I have no idea how the cars managed to get up some of those routes. They were very difficult and treacherous and long and through multiple, multiple armed checkpoints because we're in the Houthi controlled area and there's just multiple, multiple checkpoints. We finally get to this village as far as we can go by vehicle. We then have to get out of the vehicle and trek the final um, few hundred metres or so until we got to this very remote mountain area, which is basically a community built on the side of a mountain. The houses are scattered around this incline. They're self-sufficient or trying to be self-sufficient with patches of farmland around them. And each house is separated by an incline where you have to climb up the hill further up the mountain to get to each house. And in the middle of this, so there, there is nothing but farmland, remote rocky terrain all around, a small dam built. In the middle of this, there is this one mud and stone house which has been flattened. It's just rubble. It's recent enough for all their belongings to still be scattered amongst in and out of the stones. And we talk to um, multiple witnesses to this who give us a sort of timeline of when it happened, the lead up to it, you know, 15 minutes before the hit, they heard a jet circling above them. Uh, remember, the only people who've got air control over this area are the, the Saudi-led coalition they hear the sound of a bomb being dropped. It lands on this one house in the middle of this very remote countryside. Inside that house, it is around about one o'clock in the afternoon. There are women feeding mothers, breastfeeding mothers, children, babies, all gathering for their midday meal. It's a very communal community around there. They live in extended families and the, the Majali family was all gathering, just busy making their lunch like millions of other people all around the world when this bomb suddenly hit. We managed to track down the only three survivors. Nine people died that day. Six of them were children. The three others were women there wasn't a single adult man there who could be construed as a fighter or involved in any sort of military gathering. We managed to track the only three survivors, one of whom was a baby. The two others are hundreds of kilometres away in two different areas. One was a 14-year-old boy who couldn't remember anything. All he can remember is sitting, playing in front of his telly, playing computer games or something. That's all he could remember. The next thing, he woke up in hospital in having been in a coma for some considerable time, covered in burns and being told by doctors that he probably wouldn't walk again. The other survivor was a mother who was breastfeeding her child, her baby boy, with her toddler daughter next to her. That toddler daughter and one other daughter just died instantly. Somehow she managed to survive because she was in the part of the house which was right on, on the right-hand side of the house. 
she managed to shield herself. She, she threw her body around the baby and somehow she survived. She was cut and had some shrapnel in her leg. Very, very shocked. When we tracked her down 130 kilometres away, where she'd taken refuge with another member of a family, her husband wasn't there at the time, he was out working. She was still traumatised. Voice still shaking, still couldn't quite believe what had happened. She showed us pictures of her, her family and all the children, angry as well, um, telling us, you know, just came out of the blue. Why are they attacking us? Why, why did this happen to us? That was one incident that we were investigating in the Houthi-controlled area. And it seemed to us, because we spent so long travelling through that area and around that area, we, as I said, we spoke to multiple neighbours who raced to the scene, who were terrified in seeing this scene of absolute devastation. They were talking about body parts, Dermot, all over the place, pointing in different directions, saying there was a leg over there, something landed on my roof, there were body parts on my roof. You know, someone else saying, down there, you, there was a, a, a woman's hand and leg. They were showing us pictures that they'd taken, most of whom which were far too distressing to even look at, never mind actually air, of dead babies, mutilated bodies, but they also took pictures of parts of the shrapnel which had identifying marks on it. And through those identifying marks, we matched it up with other footage taken by local media, other footage taken by Houthi activists, tracked it down to, we believe, a locked-up room. It was gathered by Houthi activists. And we're fairly convinced that this is a typical bomb used by the Saudi-led coalition quite, quite regularly. Well, uh, we should say at this point the Saudi-led coalition's joint incidents assessment team say it is still investigating that airstrike in Washa in North Yemen. We should also say there are concerns about the UK government's role in partially equipping the Saudi forces in that conflict and the UK government has issued a statement. It says... It's deeply concerned by the ongoing conflict and humanitarian crisis in Yemen. We fully support the peace process led by the UN Special Envoy Martin Griffiths and urge the parties to engage constructively with this process. The government takes its export responsibility seriously and assesses all export licences in accordance with strict licensing criteria. We will not issue any export licences. Where to do so would be inconsistent with these criteria. That from the government of the United Kingdom. Well, uh, Alex, just tell us a bit more about uh, the allegations on the rebel side. So we went to the the area which is controlled by the coalition. So this is the area which is being targeted by the Houthi rebels, and they're obviously like on both sides. They're both very keen to show us the um, atrocities by the, the enemy, if you like, in this case, the Houthis. I think it's fair to say that there are many more civilians who have died at the hands of coalition attacks than there are by Houthi attacks, simply because they don't have the weaponry. The coalition side as I said, has air dominance, and the Houthis don't have that air dominance. However, 
as one of the human rights investigators told us, it's a bit like saying you're a bit pregnant. You either commit a war crime and it's a war crime or there's no you've committed more, so you're more guilty. A war crime is a war crime is a war crime. And in the um, divided city of Taiz, which is third largest city in Yemen, it used to be an area of great cultural significance, was a beautiful city. It's still beautiful now, um, if you look geographically at this sort of huge spread of of land, a big sprawling city, but it's now got a big green line through it, which is no man's area. And the pro-government side is regularly faced with indiscriminate shelling from the Houthi front lines. The trouble is this is quite a densely packed area. So that shell, those shells land somewhere and they invariably land on civilians. Um, The Houthis are also accused of recruiting children into their ranks. That was uh, a claim made by a UN panel of experts. They're also regularly accused by the UN and others of setting up illegal secret prisons where people are tortured. And certainly on one street in Tyres, one of the local human rights investigators said he had at least 30, he'd logged at least 30 incidents on this one street of abuses against civilians by the Houthi rebels. We managed to get access into the main jail in Tyres, which was attacked It's very close to the Houthi front lines and the divided area in the city. And the allegation is that the Houthis fired their shells, their artillery shells, into the prison. Now, it doesn't matter if you're a prisoner or not. You're still a civilian and you're still a non-combatant. And that would still, under international law, constitute a war crime, just indiscriminately firing into an area. We also investigated in Taz the use of um, Houthi mines in the areas that they had once occupied and were being forced out of. There is a pattern of the Houthi rebels leaving behind hidden mines and that is causing a huge amount of distress and blowing up um, children's legs, women's legs. They told us about returning to their homes which had recently been vacated by Houthi fighters and stepping on mines in their kitchens as they're entering their homes. And one woman told us that there were three women in, just in her family. She'd lost one leg. One of her sister-in-laws had lost both her legs and another one had lost a single leg like her. And these, these women, I mean, their lives are just changed forever and it's not just happening in tires we spoke to um, a young girl who I reckon was about eight years old really really sad case of how she'd been out in the field with her friends and picked up something that she didn't recognize and it had blown off her hand Um, and it had blown up in her face so her she'd lost the sight in one eye completely lost that eye and one can't imagine how difficult life is going to be for that that child, because life is difficult anyway in Yemen. Never mind when you're, you've lost an eye, you've lost a hand. Your life is going to be extraordinarily difficult. Well, let's bring in uh, Zane Jafar now, Sky's foreign news editor, and Zane just to address uh, some of what I've been discussing 
with Alex at the start of this conversation. Um, it's clearly important that the entire world knows about these stories and this light is shed upon them. But the difficulty, first and foremost, as Alex was describing, is actually getting in there to witness these scenes in the first place. Tell us more about how you prepare for a story like this uh, and how you then deployed to a country in such a dire situation as Yemen? You know, based in the Middle East and working in the region for the last 10 years nearly, um, it, honestly, Yemen might be the most complicated and difficult story logistically to, to work on. For all the reasons that Alex just spelled out, you're basically dealing with two countries within a country, two different authorities, one in the north, the Houthis, one in the south, the UN-recognized government backed by Saudi Arabia, the UAE and others. But you've also got within those authorities different groups, administrations, bureaucracies, ministries, uh, media councils that you've got to try and and deal with to uh, sort out your access. It's, in terms of the security situation in Yemen, incredibly unstable. Alex just gave a very vivid account of Taz. Taz is a city that um, very few journalists have been able to visit since the start of the conflict. And one of the reasons why is because at various points in the last five years, You've had part of the city controlled by the Houthis, the other part controlled by fighting groups allied to the government. You've had Al-Qaeda groups operating from uh, within certain districts and neighborhoods in the city. You've had aid workers killed and targeted by those extremist organizations. It's an incredibly difficult place to work in. And so it takes a lot of preparation. It's no exaggeration when I say that we've been working and pushing to get access to Yemen since exactly this time two years ago, 2018, was the last time I was able to get into Yemen and explore both sides of the conflict from Aden in the south all the way up to Sana'a and Haja in the north of the country. So it's, it's a lot of work, but genuinely it's worth it because the heartbreaking thing in Yemen is not just the suffering that so many millions, tens of millions of people are going through. It's that when you speak to Yemenis, human rights activists, journalists, campaigners, ordinary people, they feel totally alone. And actually, it's heartbreaking because they, they don't quite understand just why the world isn't doing more to bring an end to this conflict even though it's an incredibly complex process uh, and exhausting process, it's absolutely vital uh, that we go in and do this because tragically and unfortunately, as bad as the situation has been in countries across the region, I'm not quite sure as an out and out humanitarian disaster, I've seen anything quite as bad as what we're seeing in Yemen today. I suppose a lot of people are thinking, I certainly am, those awful scenes of deprivation, suffering, starvation, and of course, war that you all personally witness, it's got to have an effect on you, hasn't it? How do you, how do you process it? Can you leave it behind? Or does it fundamentally change you? No, it unquestionably changes you. And both in terms of the immediate impact of seeing, in particular on this trip, the suffering of children, the children's hospital, the children's clinic that we visited in a province called Abs in northern Yemen, which has a capacity, I think if I'm right, of 18 or 19 beds and had 80 plus children 
all of whom were suffering from severe acute malnutrition and one of whom uh, passed away in front of us. I mean, that's, that's something that in the moment and for weeks, months, years afterwards, of course, it, it, it affects you in a way that very few other things can. But I mean, I've been lucky enough, Dermot, to have been able to cover Yemen since the conflict really ramped up and the siege on northern Yemen began in 2015. And genuinely, every time you leave that place, whether it's working with, with Alex or with other colleagues on the story over the years, I don't think there's ever been a time where a team that I've worked with has left Yemen and not been genuinely either on the verge of tears or in tears because you feel so maybe hopeless, guilty, frustrated, the generosity of people that you come across, the support that they give you. You know, I think this is not just for, for Yemen, but across the region, you're often working in these extremely difficult conditions. And what people don't always realize is that the only reason you can do this work is because of the support and generosity that local Yemeni people in this case give you. Whether it's the local producer, Ahmed, who looks after you every minute of every day, as well as doing his job as a journalist to get you this access and to get you into these places, whether it's the drivers, Sammy and Eamon, who take you up non-existent mountain roads for seven or eight hours, you know, genuinely your life is in their hands, whether it's the doctors in these hospitals, whether it's the people in the guest houses and hotels that you sleep in, these people are essentially, your life is in their hands, they look after you. And for people facing these kinds of, this level of suffering and difficulty and heartache and heartbreak, in a place like Yemen, for them to give you so much of their energy and their time and their support, it's astounding. I, I don't quite understand how or why they do it, but they do. Mm -hmm. And so, so covering these incidents and these issues, of course it takes a personal toll, but you, you have to feel connected to this incredible people, this incredible society that's so proud of their history and so proud of their culture and, and rightly so, because Yemen is, unbelievably beautiful beautiful people beautiful scenery beautiful foods you wouldn't expect to be talking of the world's worst humanitarian crisis in such a way but actually it's a massive vast diverse country with so much to offer so much to see and its people are remarkable and rightly proud of what you know their history has left but unfortunately totally shattered and heartbroken by the situation that they're dealing with you there's, there's nothing you can do but be affected by it and Alex is it only afterwards that the enormity of what you've witnessed strikes you hits you really hard I think there's an enormous responsibility that comes with it I certainly felt that and I think the team equally felt that it's like you uh, have this massive big burden on you because access is so rare and so much is happening in the in that country that is so, so wrong, that there's a huge responsibility to try and eke out as much as you can and to show people the way it is. And frankly, when they're faced with desperation and tragedy and their own personal um, problems all around the world, it's a big responsibility to try to make them care about this. And they should be caring. Well, Zane, Alex, uh, goes without saying, makes me very proud to be 
part of an organisation alongside you to be a colleague of yours. Thank you so very much for bringing us that background to the remarkable and important reporting you're doing from inside Yemen. Thank you. And that's it. Until next time, go to the Sky News mobile app and social channels for more on the crisis in Yemen, including Alex Crawford's special reporting on our YouTube channel. Thanks for joining us for this edition of the Sky News Daily Podcast, hosted by me, Dermot Murnahan, and produced by Annie Joyce and Emma Ray Woodhouse. And don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or whichever podcasting app you prefer. If you've enjoyed this, please leave a review. On November the 1st, 2006, two Russian agents released a deadly nuclear poison in the bar of the Five Star Millennium Hotel in London's Mayfair. The agents were on a mission to kill former KGB spy Alexander Litvinenko. But there was another man in the hotel bar that day whose life would change forever. But when they mentioned radiation, I went, what? What are you talking about? From Sky News Storycast, Polonium and the Piano Player. Subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of Reply All is brought to you by Squarespace. Squarespace has made building a beautiful website easier than ever. You'll get a premium look without a struggle, plus lots of functionality like e-commerce and SEO optimization. When you're ready to launch, head to squarespace.com slash replyall for a free trial and use the offer code replyall to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. This episode of Reply All is brought to you by Choiceology, a podcast from Charles Schwab. Choiceology is about the forces that affect our decisions, from the day-to-day to the life-changing. It's hosted by Wharton professor and decision scientist Katie Milkman. Tune in to hear her speaking with Nobel laureates, best-selling authors, elite athletes, and more about why we do the things we do. Listen to Choiceology at schwab.com slash podcast or wherever you listen. From Gimlet, this is Reply All. I'm Alex Goldman. And I'm PJ Vogt. And this week, PJ, we have a super tech support. Super Tech Support is a segment on our show where listeners write in with extraordinary, unsolvable tech problems, and we decide... I do a great job solving them. We decide that you're the person who will solve all of them. Yeah, and um, I actually have kind of a doozy this week. What have you got? Uh, So this Super Tech Support comes to us from one of my favorite writers. First things first, can you just tell me who you are? I'm Gia Tolentino. I'm a staff writer at The New Yorker. And... You emailed us. Yes, I did. (laughs) Can you tell me why you emailed us? I emailed you guys because I bought Bitcoin in what I thought was 2011, but I think was January 2012. I bought some Bitcoin because I had read Adrian Chen's piece on Gawker about Silk Road. And I was like, I want to see if I can learn how to buy Bitcoin, figure out what the dark web is. Gia told me that at the time she'd just gotten back from a year in the Peace Corps. She was in Kyrgyzstan. And she just had very little access to the internet. And so I got reacquainted with the internet by 
buying some Bitcoin and then buying some drugs off Silk Road and then being like, wow, the Internet's tight. And mm-hmm. I like sampled a couple of things. What did you settle on for what you wanted to buy? I think I bought weed and Molly. OK. Yeah. And <clears throat> how were the drugs? I think they were fine. I actually think the weed was not that good. And I think the Molly was Molly. <laughs> so it was great. <laughs> <laughs> Gia says she bought about 80 bucks worth of Bitcoin for this drug purchase. And she knows that there was Bitcoin left over. But in the six years since the original purchase, she has totally forgotten what happened to the Bitcoin. It's like when you go on a trip and then you have like some some like currency left over and you throw it in a sock drawer. Right. Although the thing, I kind of feel like I know the next thing, which is that it's like if you go on a trip, have some currency left over in a sock drawer, and in the intervening years, this currency becomes like immensely, immensely valuable. Right. I We sat down, this was a couple months ago, and tried to figure out exactly how much $80 worth of Bitcoin would be today. Uh, what was the date you, you gave? January 24th, 2012. On the 23rd, Bitcoin was $6.29. Fuck. And now... It is $16,848.49. So 80, like, let's say 80 divided by 6 times 16K. Um, I could have $213,000 right now. <laughs> I could have so much money. Oh, my God. What's wrong with me? That must be really agonizing. I'm so mad at myself. I'm sorry to sound so smug about it. <laughs> no, it's crazy. But it's also like, that was never real money. Oh, it was though. God. 200, this is, this really hurts to look at. This really hurts to look at. I, I really, wow. Gia probably doesn't have the full $213,000 because we've established she's already spent some of that money. She just has the remainder. But it could easily be six figures of money. Yeah. Oh man, that's the worst feeling. Okay. So, so I was like, I want to help. And I was like, okay, first things first, let's just retrace Gia's steps, which is actually really hard because not only did she buy this Bitcoin six years ago, buying Bitcoin is stupidly complicated. So can you explain to me to the best of your memory, like exactly the process of buying the Bitcoin and then buying the drugs? Yes. Okay. Uh, They're going to be big holes here. (laughs) Okay. So I downloaded Tor. And then I looked at Silk Road and I said, okay, I'm going to try to get some Bitcoin and make an account and do this. And then I remember taking my boyfriend's car to the Bank of America drive-thru, putting like, you know, what I think might have been $80 in a little pneumatic tube and getting sucked up the pneumatic tube. Wait a minute. You deposited money, yeah. cash, American, absolutely. U.S. dollars. absolutely. That's via I, pneumatic too. Yeah, I, I did. At a normal bank. Yeah, is that? I think that's what I was supposed to do. I think that was actually just her putting money in her bank account. Either way, she goes home, gets on the internet, just like the regular internet, not the dark web. And she goes to this thing called a Bitcoin exchange, which just think of it as a bank. But it's just like a website. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She purchases Bitcoin using that money. Okay. So now her money is at this online Bitcoin exchange, a.k.a. bank, and she has one of two options. She can let the Bitcoin exchange keep track of the Bitcoin for her, or she can keep track of it using a program on her laptop called a Bitcoin wallet, which is what she thinks she did. And then I remember using some sort of internet tutorial to learn PGP or to get a PGP key. I did like encrypt something about my wallet. (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah, I hate these words, right? It's like, I wish I had a little wallet that would, is that, I like, where do Bitcoin live? Where do they live? What's money? <laughs> Hard to say. So the thing that I didn't fully understand about Bitcoin until I started reporting this story is that it's pretty much impossible to lose. Because all it means to own Bitcoin is there's this gigantic public list of every account and every transaction that's ever been made using Bitcoin. It is totally anonymous. And when you buy Bitcoin, all they do is put you on the list. And the thing that Gia lost is her proof that she's on the list. It's called a key. And all that does is allow her to point to a spot on the list and say, those $80 worth of Bitcoin, those are mine. It's like she, it's like what she actually lost is more like a claim ticket. Right. So what we're looking for is the key to Gia's Bitcoin. And it's totally possible that it lives on her old laptop in her Bitcoin wallet. Okay. Gia did tell me, though, that the laptop is broken and it doesn't turn on. I am going to need that computer. Okay. Should I... Should I, like, get, send it off somewhere and get that hard drive done? or can Before you... you do that, I'd like to take a look at it. Okay. Um, I have a history of tech support, so I might, be yeah, able to, yeah. I might be able to boot the thing up and see what's going on there. I will bring you my laptop. This is exciting. I like this. So a couple days later, Gia comes by the office. Hey, how's it going? I meet her outside. And she had told me that this laptop didn't turn on. But she didn't tell me the extent to which it didn't turn on. All right, here it is. It's, um... <laughs> oh, it's my God, little, it feels so big. Well, I think it's bloated with whatever I broke it with. <laughs> like, I think there's some, like, water damage or something. Oh. Or, I mean... It was not water damage. I opened up the computer, and it turns out that the battery had exploded inside the computer. But I managed to get the hard drive out. I connected it to my computer, and I went down into the studio with producer Damiano Marchetti. Okay, it is uh, Tuesday, January 2nd, 2018. Welcome to the new year, Damiano. Don't act like you're not in the room. Okay, I am going to look in Gia's hard drive today in the hopes that I can find a Bitcoin wallet and maybe her lost riches. Got it. Are you ready for this odyssey of discovery? It's very exciting. Oh, you're slotting it in. Maybe don't force it. I had it in backwards. Is it mounting? It's not. The hard drive is spinning. I can feel the hard drive spinning. There's a chance that like this, the hard drive's dead. The hard drive is spinning, which means that... Oh. I know what the problem is. It's not connected to my computer. <laughs> oh, that's embarrassing. So anyway, I get the hard drive working, and then... Wait a second. Wait a second. This looks like a wallet address. I find this program on our computer that's called Bitcoin Core, and I open it up. It has no transactions. It has not received any Bitcoin. It has not sent any Bitcoin. Basically, it's saying she doesn't have anything. That's what it's saying, yes. So it's a dead end. It's a but total it, dead end. But it's a slightly interesting dead end because it's like, I mean, clearly she's right that, like, it's not like she invented the memory of buying Bitcoin, <laughs> but it's not there. It's not in the laptop, which means it could probably only be in one other place. So do you remember when I said that Gia bought her Bitcoin from a Bitcoin exchange, which is like- Like a, a bank? Where, yes. I do remember. Um. She, when she bought them, she might have just decided to leave that money on the website. 
since there's nothing for them to actually like hold on to, what does that mean? Basically, instead of her managing her own Bitcoin keys and worrying about potentially losing them and never getting her Bitcoin back, she could leave it on this site. And instead of having to worry about the key, all she'd have to worry about is the username and password to the site. It's as simple as that. Okay. And the good news is that Gia remembers where she bought her Bitcoin, which Which, is great. Which is where? Well, that's the bad news. She bought it at a website called Mt. Gox. So in the early days of Bitcoin, Mt. Gox was like the Bank of America of Bitcoin. If you wanted to buy Bitcoin, you'd go to them. Okay. There were estimates that something like 80% of all Bitcoin transactions went through the site. And what happened was, one day in early 2014, Mt. Gox just stopped honoring people's requests to move money. <laughs> okay. People... It's like if all of a sudden Bank of America was like, eh. And then a document leaked from Mt. Gox that said over the course of several years, hackers had stolen about 850,000 Bitcoin from Mt. Gox. Whoa. Yes. One of the biggest Bitcoin exchange houses called Mt. Gox has gone offline and seems to have vanished. Something is suspicious and doesn't smell right here. Transactions have been halted and the CEO was unaccounted for after resigning from the Bitcoin Foundation. People were freaking out about this. There was talk that this was the end of Bitcoin entirely because there was half a billion dollars worth of Bitcoin that was just gone, which today would be worth $10 billion. They managed to recover some of the Bitcoin that they've lost, but a huge chunk of it is just gone. Mt. Gox declares bankruptcy. People start filing lawsuits left and right. It's a total mess. The only bright point in this dark tale, I mean, at least for us, is that Mt. Gox puts a portal on their website that lets you check to see if you had Bitcoin there when the site shut down. Like if your name was Gia Tolentino. Right. Hello? So I call Gia. I walk her through the site. It'll take you to the Mt. Gox bankruptcy filing system. Hey. All right. (laughs) Okay. She tries to log in. Hmm. Okay, that didn't work. Like, what password was I using in 2011? She can't remember her password. She has, like, my level of memory. We tried using the forgot Uh, my password option. The temporary authentication code will be sent to the contact email address that you entered on the bankruptcy claim form. I think I might have missed the boat on this. Oh, no. It turns out the whole system only works if you filed your lost Bitcoin claim before July of 2015. So we're a couple years too late. I'm sorry I'm so useless. This is, look. I could have made us rich. (laughs) All we're doing is exhausting all possible options. Yeah. And there's still a chance you can make us rich. Never give up. I will okay. never give up. There as long as you have hundreds, of, potentially hundreds of thousands of dollars locked on the internet somewhere, yeah, <laughs> you have to have hope. I mean, it's still possible that her Bitcoin was in Mt. Gox when it was hacked, which is the only thing at this point that we're trying to figure out. But we won't be able to get that information from this website. Okay, that sucks. But at this point, I'm feeling pretty jazzed because I feel like all I need to do is find the right person at Mt. Gox to speak to, like the right bank teller. And it turns out there's actually this hotline. Somewhere in Japan, there's a room where people sit by telephones and take calls all day from angry people who have lost their Bitcoin fortunes. Hello, thank you for calling. This is Antigua's call center speaking. How can I help you today? Yeah, uh, I would like to check on the um, account balance of an account on Mt. Gox. I'm so sorry, but it's not possible. 
I try asking if I can talk to her boss. I ask if there's anybody else there I can speak to. And basically, I learned that this operator has a ton of polite ways of saying no. But I could I could give you the information and maybe they would get back to me. Unfortunately, I'm not going to promise for that. Okay. Uh, is there a way to contact the trustee directly? But unfortunately, we cannot promise anything I understand. That. I understand. This went on for a while, and I didn't really get anywhere. Thank you so much, sir. Have a nice day, then. Bye-bye. Bye. So, at this point, I decided that my last option was to escalate this whole thing. To go to the one person who I was positive would know whether Gia had any Bitcoin on Mt. Gox. The owner of Mt. Gox. His name is Mark Carpellis. Okay. There's this video of him at a press conference um, after Mt. Gox went down, but before people knew that it was a hack. So we had a problem with a system that caused a loss to our, uh, because to our customers. Um, He's this nerdy, scared-looking French guy who bought the site in very early days and got super rich. And people who worked with Mark when he ran Mt. Gox told me that he ran the site in a pretty strange way, and he was really easily distracted. Like, a good example of that is he was in the process of renovating a floor in the Mt. Gox building because he was really into caramel lattes to make a cafe where he wanted to serve apple pie and quiche that he baked. That was, like, his priority. That's crazy. That's, like, Roman emperor type stuff. (laughs) Wow. So, so the, okay. So meanwhile, like a thief is stealing tiny amounts of Bitcoin and he's like, I think I got a really good quiche recipe. <laughs> so after the hack, Mark actually gets arrested because people think that he embezzled the money. He's on trial right now. And when I started talking to people in the Bitcoin realm, they all said basically, Mark's not talking to anybody. Good luck getting in touch with him. I reached out to a bunch of former Mt. Gox employees, all the people I could think of who might connect us. And I finally got in touch with a person who told me that they could be an intermediary between me and Mark. And for weeks, I would send that person a message and they would forward it to Mark, or at least that's what they told me. And then a couple days ago, I was like, I'm just going to reach out to Mark on Reddit. And On I, Reddit? He, he's a Redditor? Yes. Okay. And I did. And he was like, yeah, I know who you are. Sure, I'll help you with this. <laughs> I'll do it for the Reddit karma. (laughs) So uh, I gave him all of Gia's information and uh, proof that I, that you were her emissary. Yeah. And I told him all I want from you is to just tell me if Gia has any Bitcoin on Mt. Gox. He disappears for about six hours, comes back and says, Gia has no balance. What? On Mt. Gox. Oh my God. (laughs) I have to say, like, I'm impressed that you got that now, honestly. But what does that mean? Like, what are the remaining possibilities then? Basically, I asked Gia, are you sure that you got your Bitcoin from Mt. Gox? And she said, yes. She sent me a confirmation email. And unless she got it on Mt. Gox and then moved it to another Bitcoin exchange, it must be on her laptop. I must have missed something. So I asked Everyone that I had been speaking to about this, is there like a Bitcoin hunter out there? Like, is there a Bitcoin hunter that I can talk to? What's a to? Bitcoin hunter? Just some person who has the skill to locate missing Bitcoin. That was supposed to be you. Just so you know. Just. <laughs> is there some kind of super tech expert who can solve this problem for me? <laughs>
listen, uh-huh. I know the limits of my technical expertise. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> you know the limits of my technical expertise? Yes. And I go to people who, who can possibly help me. So is there a Bitcoin hunter out there? There is. I found him, and he agreed to help. This episode is brought to you by Chase Freedom Unlimited. The Chase Freedom Unlimited card now gives you new ways to earn more cash back on everything you buy. You earn 5% cash back on travel purchased through Chase. You earn 3% cash back on drugstore purchases. You also earn 3% cash back on dining, including takeout. And if that isn't enough earning, you earn 1.5% cash back on everything else you buy. That's right, everything. You're always earning with Chase Freedom Unlimited. Chase. Make more of what's yours. Learn more at chasefreedom.com. Restrictions and limitations apply. Offer subject to change. Cards are issued by JPMorgan Chase Bank and a member FDIC. Copyright 2020 JPMorgan Chase & Company. All rights reserved. This episode of Reply All is brought to you by Chase Freedom Unlimited. With new rewards from Chase Freedom Unlimited, you can now earn even more cash back. You earn 5% cash back on travel purchased through Chase, so you can earn while you go on that getaway. You earn 3% at drugstores, so you're earning when you stock up on daily essentials. Plus, you earn another 3% on dining, including takeout, so you can earn even if you slip up on meal prepping. And you earn 1.5% cash back on everything else you buy. So with Chase Freedom Unlimited, you're always earning. Chase, make more of what's yours. Learn more at chase.com slash reply all. Restrictions and limitations apply. Offer subject to change. Cards are issued by JPMorgan Chase Bank and a member FDIC. Copyright 2020 JPMorgan Chase & Company. All rights reserved. So the Bitcoin hunter I found, his name is Jeremy Rubin. He is really involved in the Bitcoin community and has helped other people like Gia find their lost Bitcoin. It probably happens like not infrequently. Oh yeah, it happens all the time. Um, I read something that said that it, it was like 20% of all Bitcoin are lost. Anyway, Jeremy lives in San Francisco, but I had him remote into my computer so we could take a look at Gia's hard drive together and try and find the lost Bitcoin. It's cool that you finally found someone, a, a new person to remote into your computer. <laughs> I feel like you're like a remote into my computer fetishist. And every story you do is just an excuse to give like, ooh, remote access. Hello. Hi, is this Jeremy? Yep. How's it going? Good. Basically, what we're looking for is any trace of the existence of these Bitcoins. And at first, we're just looking at the same stuff that I already looked at. But since he's a Bitcoin hunter, he knows to look in folders that I didn't even know existed. So if you go to uh, the directory called application support. Okay. So now what we're looking for in here is anything related to Bitcoin. Um, I, I see a folder right here called Bitcoin. That's exciting. That's very exciting. Oh, wow. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> so Jeremy finds this file called wallet.dat. And he says, just move that to your computer and open it there. Okay, moment of truth. Let's see what happens here. Oh, boy. 
looks like at some point there was 17 Bitcoin on this wallet. 17 Bitcoin. Yeah. <laughs> That's a lot. <laughs> 17 Bitcoin is $255,000. In today dollars. Yes. Jesus. And at this point, I'm pretty sure that this is the money that we're looking for, that this is the change from Gia's drug purchase. But the problem is it doesn't stay in her wallet. If you look, it looks like they came to the wallet and then she sent them out immediately. (laughs) So Gia's Bitcoin fortune lands in her Bitcoin wallet and almost immediately she moves it somewhere else. But here's the cool thing. Because we know Gia's Bitcoin wallet address, we can go online to this website called blockchain.info it shows me Bitcoin block 164027 from blockchain.info. Yep. It's showing me... And literally watch her Bitcoin travel from account to account to account. We don't know the actual names of the people who own these accounts, but we can see how much money they have. So we're tracing the funds now. We're seeing where they ended up. And now it's gone from you know being an, an address with 131 to 200 Bitcoin. So let's just keep on clicking on, on the biggest one and we can. And Gia's Bitcoin see. ended up in an account... Owned by someone who has way more than your average Bitcoin user. They have 69,000 Bitcoin. Wow. And Jeremy looks at that account and he's like, no one really has that kind of Bitcoin. That is much more likely probably a Bitcoin exchange. So at this point, if I'm following along, Gia took the change from her drug purchase and she put it in like another bank or exchange, whatever, like not Mt. Gox, some other place for some reason. And then she just forgot about it. Possibly. I mean... We are basically making educated guesses based on a bunch of account balances. So I asked Jeremy, like, hey, I know the whole point of Bitcoin is it's supposed to be totally anonymous. No one can figure out who's interacting with who. But, like, is there any way that we can identify anybody? Like, can we identify the people that Gia was interacting with? And Jeremy was like, maybe. Really? He said that that was, like, outside of his area of expertise. He could not do it. But there are people who claim that they can. And so he put me in touch with this company called Chainalysis. And what do they do? Chainalysis is like a company that basically does like Bitcoin forensics. So like they're the people you go to if someone is trying to blackmail you from a Bitcoin account or if the IRS is trying to catch someone who is hiding tax money in a cryptocurrency account. Got it. So the co-founder of this company, his name's Jonathan Levine. I send him an email and he writes back right away, hey, I'm on a transatlantic flight coming to New York from Cape Town. I don't have anything to do right now. I can figure this out while I'm on the plane. You saying like go-go wireless? Yeah. That's crazy. I send him uh, Gia's Bitcoin wallet address and the transaction information. And he gets back to me like a half an hour later. And he's like, I figured this out. I will be landing in New York in a couple hours. (laughs) I'm going to take a shower and then I'm coming over. Okay. So he comes to the studio. He's wearing a blazer and scarf. Like for a guy who's just traveled many, many hours, he is an extremely dapper, dapper fellow. All right. Let me give you a little a little background on this story. So should, should I try and give you the story without you even telling me and see whether that matches the story that you are going to tell me? Absolutely. Go for it. Okay. So you provided me with a Bitcoin address, and I would have really liked it if you didn't even provide me the name of the person that you were interested in. Um, because I would have been able to go back and basically tell you who that was and where she got her Bitcoin from and where she sent her Bitcoin to. How could you have figured that out? I mean, I've, I figured it out in less than 30 seconds. 
Um, I'm just trying to. I'm going to do it in real time just while we sit here. Okay. So, okay, so wait. The thing he's doing, unmasking anonymous people, the whole point is that he's not supposed to be able to do this. Like, what? Has he just, like, broken? Has he, like, hacked Bitcoin? No, he hasn't hacked Bitcoin. The deal is that, like, since every transaction using Bitcoin is public, he's watching money go from place to place, and he's sort of using deductive reasoning and educated guesses to figure out who's behind Bitcoin accounts. And he's really good at it. Um, so I can see that this Bitcoin address that you supplied me received 17.5 Bitcoin. It received all of the Bitcoin from Mt. Gox and it sent all of the Bitcoin to Silk Road. So that 69,000 Bitcoin account that we were hoping was a Bitcoin exchange? It was Silk Road. So she doesn't, the reason there's no leftover money to find is because what she's misremembering is she spent all her money on drugs. Almost all of her money. What happened? So I talked to Gia today. Okay. So this has been a real odyssey for me. Really? I, I, wait, do you know the answer? I do. Oh my God. I'm so stressed. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So. You got 17.592590000 Bitcoin. Uh-huh. You spent 17.59050000 Bitcoin, meaning you have a balance in your account of 0. <laughs> 0.00209 oh Bitcoin. Really? Wait, I spent almost all of it? I was that precise with my... Yes. Oh, my God. This is... Oh, my God. <laughs> Um, that to me feels like a win. You've got yeah, some money you in there. Found it. Point zero zero two zero nine Bitcoin is in today's Bitcoin market twenty four dollars <laughs> and forty cents. It's so embarrassing. No, this is like my mom was always like, "Gia, you shouldn't do any drugs," and I'm like, "Mom, my life is very on track. This is the first time I've been like, you should stop doing drugs." <laughs> <laughs> um, God damn. Reply All is hosted by PJ Vote and me, Alex Goldman. The show is produced by Shruti Pitamanani, Fia Benin, Damiano Marchetti, and Caitlin Roberts. More production help this week from Krista Ripple. Our editor is Tim Howard. Fact-checking by Michelle Harris. Our intern is Devin Gwynn. Special thanks this week to Jed McCaleb and Kenny Malone, who did his own great Bitcoin hunting story on the Planet Money podcast. We will put a link to that in the show notes. We were mixed by Rick Kwan. Our theme song is by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder, and the super tech support end theme song, aka the best hold music in the world, is Simplicity by Macroform. Matt Lieber is a vending machine that gives you two of the thing that you wanted by mistake. You can visit our website at replyall.limo, and you can find more episodes of the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen. Thanks for listening. We'll see you in a couple weeks. So what happens on this podcast, Alex? The podcast is going to answer the following question. What do we need to do to address the climate crisis? And how do we make those things happen? 
We're going to be answering that question on this podcast every week from now until... Until? The job is done. Until Ayana. the job is done. I'm trapped and I want a better prenup. <laughs> from Gimlet, How to Save a Planet is out now. With me, Alex Bloomberg. And me, Dr. Ayana Elizabeth Johnson. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. This week's episode? Well, well, the answer is simple. It would mean the world to us if you could head over to iTunes and leave us a five star review and feedback. Spreading the word really is the best way to grow our podcast and achieve even greater things. Thank you. Thank you.